Broadly speaking, if you look at the aggregate numbers right now, this is the best time to be a job seeker because job growth is still so high. It is about 60% higher than it was on average before the pandemic. Aloha folks and welcome back to Degree Free. I am your host, Ryan Mariyama. On this podcast, we teach you how to get the work you want without a college degree. Today, my guest is Julia Pollock, the Chief Economist at ZipRecruiter. In this episode, we get into a lot of information. We go over the current job market data, industries that are rising, industries that are seeing layoffs. And we also go over Julia's personal story coming from South Africa, going to Harvard, going to the Navy, and becoming Chief Economist at ZipRecruiter. This one is a great episode, and I definitely suggest listening all the way through. You can find Julia Pollock on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Julia on Jobs. You can find show notes to everything that we talk about at degreefree.co slash Julia Pollock. That's Julia, P-O-L-L-A-K. And without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Chief Economist and ZipRecruiter, Julia Pollock. There are no rules. No rules. You're listening to Degree Free on the Degree Free Network, where we talk about how to teach yourself, get work, and make money. No degree needed. Here are your hosts, Ryan and Hannah Maruyama. Maruyama. Aloha, everybody, and welcome back to Degree Free. I am super excited to have Chief Economist at ZipRecruiter here, Julia Pollock. Julia, thank you so much for making this happen and making the time. Well, thank you so much. It's really great to be on your show. I love your show. <laughs> thank you. And um, we were kind of talking about this before we hit record, but the way that I see my job is to kind of teach people out there what different jobs there are what different people mm -hmm. do for a living. And so I'd love to kind of just start there. When I hear chief economist as somebody that has an economics degree, like I have no idea. And we've talked about this uh, offline a bunch of times. I have no idea what that means. And my eyes kind of glaze over. And so I think <laughs> I would love to start there. What does a chief economist, what does a labor economist do? Yeah, so I think historically people with economics degrees typically went into academia and taught economics at universities. And increasingly, businesses are hiring economists. And so there is this growing community of business economists. Business economists can do a range of different things. You know, in my role, I measure the health of the economy looking at ZipRecruiter marketplace data. I run surveys. I try to figure out what are the problems, the pain points that our users, who are job seekers and employers, are struggling with and how best we can help solve them. And I also communicate those insights to the press. So part of my role is sort of, you know, being a spokesperson for the company. And I communicate those insights directly to job seekers and to employers as well. And I am really excited to have you on because exactly what you said, the ZipRecruit Marketplace data, you guys at ZipRecruiter have a treasure trove of data <laughs> available for everybody. I wouldn't mind kind of backtracking a little bit and talking just a little bit about ZipRecruiter and what ZipRecruiter does. Because for a lot of people here, the sentiment is that it's kind of a place where the employer goes to post jobs and that gets aggregated out to a bunch of different job boards. But 
but that's not a place where job seekers go. And that's just the sentiments of people that listen to this show. So if you mm-hmm. guys, if you wouldn't mind kind of just talking a little bit about what ZipRecruiter does and what you guys are working on currently. Sure. I mean, so ZipRecruiter is an online marketplace that actively connects employers and job seekers. And it's very much the place that job seekers should go if they want to find a job quickly and they want a little bit of guidance along the way. So we help job seekers find jobs quickly by you know allowing them to, to create a profile. They don't even need to upload a resume. And then connecting them with jobs that match their skills and interests as soon as those jobs are posted uh, through email alerts and a range of other uh, products. Awesome. Fantastic. I kind of want to go into the data that you see. And right before we hit record, you said today is jobs day. And I had no idea what that meant. I literally thought that you guys were having like a jobs fair day, but (laughs) (laughs) like... Like, oh, you're interviewing a bunch of people. Right on. Awesome. So that's not what it is. Apparently, the labor numbers came out today. So a very timely recording. And I wouldn't mind just kind of picking your brain since I have you here and talk about the state of the labor market and what the outlook in the near future is. It's kind of a broad question. So I'll kind of give a little bit of context. One of the things that we keep when we turn on CNBC, MSNBC, any of the business news, you kind of always hear these pundits and these people talking about how the labor market has never been better, or it's a very good time to be a job seeker. And one, what does that mean? And then two, for people listening to this podcast, a lot of people have exactly the opposite experience. They've been trying for months, weeks, applying and applying, applying to jobs. And I guess I just wanted to see within that context, like, what do you see out there? Sure. So the labor market is a really complicated, tricky market. It is not like the market for pizzas or shoes where you choose something and you get it right away. Uh, The labor market is a matching market. It's a two-sided market where you need to be you need to choose something and you need simultaneously to be chosen by that thing at the same time. And that's what makes it so tricky that sort of your wants and employers wants need to kind of coincide at exactly the right time for everything to work out. It's a bit like the marriage market, right? There are lots of of single men and women and uh, there are lots of people struggling to find a match. And so it, it has some similarities. That said, broadly speaking, if you look at the aggregate numbers right now, This is the best time to be a job seeker because job growth is still so high. It is about 60% higher than it was on average before the pandemic. And because those jobs are being created across the economy, across a wider set of industries than than was normal before the pandemic, those jobs are also more attractive in many different ways. So we look at terms and job postings to see how employers are changing their jobs and what kind of offers they're giving people. And we also survey job seekers. We have a, a big survey about people who were just hired in the last six months. And among people hired in the past six months, about... Uh, 27% got signing bonuses. That's up from 22% in the last uh, survey six months ago. It's also up from a sort of historical average of 4%, right? Typically, not very many people got signing bonuses. They were reserved for top talent, for the kinds of people you were poaching, you know, for executives. They weren't given to everyone, but now they're actually pretty ubiquitous in trucking, in grocery stores, in at UPS, all over the place. For holiday workers, right? Holiday jobs are offering signing bonuses of one to $3,000 for a one to two month job at the moment. Uh, So they're very, very widespread. There's been a big race, especially since the pandemic, among companies to offer greater schedule flexibility, 
more tuition assistance, more generous benefits, all kinds of new perks and apps like earned wage access or on-demand pay as it's known uh, that allows you to get paid right away, not have to wait uh, for payday. So jobs have become a lot more flexible and attractive to workers over the past two years, and we haven't yet seen that start to cool down meaningfully yet. And that's a big juxtaposition with the headlines that you see today, which are all about tech layoffs, right? So there is a kind of a slice of the economy where the hiring picture has changed substantially since the Fed started raising interest rates. Uh, those areas are housing, real estate, mortgage lending. We're also seeing you know, a slowdown kind of you know, more broadly in, in the financial sector because this is not a great year for companies to go public and IPO. There's not a lot of deal making going on. So the banks are, are laying people off as well. Uh, so on Wall Street right now, and in Silicon Valley, things have cooled down a lot on Main Street in restaurants, hotels, trucking companies, etc., etc. There is still enormous demand for workers and job seekers, because they're pretty scarce right now by historical standards, are in the driver's seat. You said a bunch of things there that I kind of want to just double click on. My first question would be, you talked about the, the job markets that were cooling tech, mm -hmm. real estate, and then you kind of talked about the places that have the most or have a lot of growth. What is the sector that mm -hmm. has the most growth? Well, it changes from month to month. In recent months, you know, leisure and hospitality has been adding jobs uh, very rapidly, professional and business services, healthcare. Healthcare is one area where we've seen just steady, steady strength in online job, job postings. Manufacturing is doing surprisingly well right now. Because it's so capital intensive, it is quite sensitive to interest rates and borrowing costs, but it's still doing remarkably well. So most of the economy right now, the vast majority of industries are contributing gains, not losses. And where there are job losses, they are relatively small. And they're kind of concentrated in white collar roles, which is unusual for a recession. Usually recessions hit blue collar fields, construction, manufacturing, those kinds of things hardest. Retail, that's not not the world we're in today. You said something that was kind of interesting and congruent with like my own experience or what I've seen um, from talking to people with mm -hmm. the signing bonuses, right? Like that's crazy. That blew my mind. 27% <laughs> of people are getting signing bonuses. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Cause that seems it's just like an everyday thing now. And then you said it, it used to be 4%. What do you think is the reason for this such massive increase in signing bonuses? And then are those increases in signing bonuses, is that structured? Is that like, you know, Kroger or Safeway has a $1,000 to $3,000 signing bonus? Or is that something that people are negotiating? No, many of those are offered right there in the job posting to any candidate who applies. And that that is new. That was not always the case. It does seem, though, uh, as though in recent months, mentions of signing bonuses have gone down in job postings. But but candidates are still getting them. So it looks as though people are increasingly negotiating for them as well. Yeah, awesome. And that's, I remember my first, my first ever job negotiation <laughs> and it went terrible. I mean, it just went terrible. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't my first job. It was just my first like time that like, okay, so what, so I'll just tell you the story. I went, I graduated college and then I got a job as supervisor at a small regional bank. And then mm -hmm. while I was applying, I still had the interviews coming in. And so I interviewed for another one for another bank. And I was like, well, I'm making this much money. I'll just say how much I was making. I was making like $28,000 at uh, my first job. And so I was going to this other bank and about to negotiate with them. And I was like, okay, well, I'm making 28 here. 
So I'm just going to shoot for the moon and I'm going to like, I'm just going to ask for the world. So I go into the, so I go into the room and I was sitting across from this person. I'm just like, yeah, you know, with the, with the market, the way that it is and my experience and my degree, you know, I would really, I think, uh, I would really like $37,000 a year. And <laughs> they literally, like, she literally laughed at me. It was, she, <laughs> she, it was like, it was, it wasn't, and it wasn't like a, uh, Oh, that's cute. It was like a belly laugh. Like, <laughs> like that's so funny. And it would never even occur to me at that time to even ask for bonuses, right? So the, the, for tend to end the story, I ended up getting paid like 31000 and it was a little bit more, so I took it. But yeah, I probably could have negotiated for a bonus, which seems more and more commonplace, as you said. Know if you could have because i don't think it was that common i mean let me, let me tell you about my my job negotiation stories my first few uh, forays into negotiating offers weren't so successful either you know the first job i took out of college it was 2009 it was the great recession i had you know graduated from harvard with an economics degree and when i started that degree the graduating students then who became our mentors and who had already accepted jobs you know this is back in 2005 told us that they'd all accepted jobs sort of on Wall Street or at McKinsey or, you know, those kinds of firms. And they were all getting paid about 60000 a year in their base pay and 60000 a year in bonuses at the time. So I expected that right out of college, I was going to make 120000 a year, right? Then, of course, 2008, 2009 happened. And all the financial sector companies that had given me offers had to rescind those offers when they accepted TARP funding because one of the conditions was that they couldn't provide H-1B visas anymore to foreigners. I'm a South African immigrant. And so I had to look elsewhere and I started looking at think tanks and academic institutions. And I was, I mean, my first job offer was as a research assistant making 32000 a year. So it was a massive sort of decline in what I had expected to make. And I tried to negotiate because I just couldn't quite accept that uh, my expectations you know, had been dashed so terribly. So I, I asked for at least 40 and they also looked at me like I was crazy, but eventually sort of kind of gave in and, and we, we hit on 36. So that was my first effort. After that, I joined the U.S. Navy and, you know, talked to a recruiter because I wasn't yet a U.S. citizen. I, I had to go enlisted. I couldn't become an officer. And I said, look, you know, I'm, I'm in economics and I did all this work on foreign policy and I have foreign language experience. I'd love to go into, into intelligence. And they said, hey, do you like aviation or, you know, do you like being on a ship? I said, no, I love aviation, air, you know, air travel, flights. Very, very exciting to me. Okay, great. The perfect job for you is as an aviation structural mechanic. I have no idea what that was. But basically, that's, you know, there aren't many Harvard uh, graduates doing that job. <laughs> that is a dirty job turning wrenches on aircraft. So I became a helicopter mechanic in the U.S. Navy for 11 years, a role that I actually ended up, you know, loving. It was a total change from my, my daily grind. Um, and I ended up abandoning my efforts to, to go the officer route later on when I did become a U.S. citizen because I just had so much fun in that enlisted community turning wrenches. That is amazing. And since we started to go down that path with your story, one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you on is uh, we had a call before this where I kind of got to learn a little bit about your background. And it is truly an amazing story. And you kind of hinted where it ended. But for those listening... <laughs> I wouldn't mind if you kind of started at the beginning with you in South Africa and kind of just uh, sure. telling your story a little bit about uh, 
going to Harvard and then afterwards? Sure. So I was born and raised in South Africa, born to a great human rights activist and anti-apartheid activist there who sat on the board of two universities, the University of Cape Town and the University of Stellenbosch, and nevertheless told me, Julia, I want you to leave. Uh, we could already see back then in 2005 that sort of the way to get ahead in South Africa would be loyalty to the ruling party and corruption. And my mother wanted me to have no part of it. And she said, you know, reach for the stars, apply to Oxford and Harvard and whatnot. She was far more partial to the United States than to Europe. She said, go to America where hard work can allow you to reach the stars and enable you to do anything. And so that's what I did. And, you know, I loved it so much that even though I think initially I thought I would go back to sort of try to help out the new government back in South Africa, I ended up staying in the United States. I felt I'd never experienced this, you know, that amount of academic and intellectual freedom, physical safety, et cetera, et cetera. I just, I, it was just such a feast for the senses to be on an American campus. Graduated in 2009, Great Recession wasn't the finest part of my uh, career, but I, I took a role at a think tank where I learned a lot. I wrote a lot. And I met very interesting people. I worked on national security policy issues, military manpower, defense policy. So I rubbed shoulders with a lot of uh, you know, Senate staff and congressional staff and military leaders. I was very impressed by the military leaders I met with. And so I became interested in possibly serving this new country that I had adopted and about which I was very, very enthusiastic and still am. So I walked into a recruiting station one day and the rest is history. Once you go into a recruiting station, you never come out. <laughs> they had me they had me take, you know, swearing an oath at a military processing center like the very next day. So that was it. And are um, you are you still a reservist now? I was until March of this year, and I probably would have stayed longer, but I came to the end of my contract, and rather than re-enlisting, I made the sort of somewhat painful decision to leave because I had a new baby, and my I was looking after my mother who was terminally ill with cancer at the time, and I couldn't, whereas before with the two big kids and my husband at home, it was totally fine. It was very easy to, to leave. My husband you know, was a great sort of, uh, he, he has a lot of t-shirts that say sort of Navy wife. He was the great military spouse. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and and loved you know looking after the kids and holding down the fort at home while I was away. Um, it just became much harder when there were two more people who were so dependent on me and reliant on me. So I regret leaving, uh, but it was the right thing to do for the family. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for sharing. What's so interesting about your background and your history is that you are on on the one hand, you are the chief economist, a zip recruiter, you're a labor economist, and you're just doing thinking all day looking at these numbers and trying to parse data. And on the other hand, you're a helicopter mechanic, right? And as you said, <laughs> you're just turning wrenches, right? And I had a conversation with, I was lucky enough to have a conversation with the CEO of ZipRecruiter, Ian, and we were talking about how the well-rounded person, somebody that can do all of these things nowadays is becoming less and less valued in the job market. And mm -hmm. what he says is the job market wants pointy people. And so, what, what, right. right? And so it's like somebody that just specifically knows Salesforce. So like you're a Salesforce right. architect, like you can, you can implement this thing really well. I don't, really need you to know how to craft a story. I don't really need you to even open emails. Like I need you to, I need you to do this thing for me. And so right. one of the things that, and I, I've struggled with this in my, in my own life. And I know a lot of people out there struggle with this as well. When making a career transition, you kind of think that you're pointy in one area and you want to go be a 
pointing in another area and you don't really know how to translate those skills that you learned here to skills that you learned there. So I guess my question is, is like, what have you learned from, you know, being a helicopter mechanic and what has it, how has that transitioned into what you do now? So well, I missed out a you know a big portion of the, the story in between, which is that um, you know afterwards I I did my uh, graduate research at the Rand Corporation, a place where I could do defense and economics, and then I taught economics at Pepperdine University, and then I kind of stumbled across this job at ZipRecruiter by accident on my drive back and forth to Pepperdine. I listened to podcasts, and ZipRecruiter advertises on podcasts, and so one night when I was up really late till you know past one a.m. Uh, grading students' assignments and working on my dissertation. And just, I mean, it was such a chore, and I felt so underpaid as sort of a you know, junior faculty member and as a graduate student. Uh, I, I started to think, like, you know, what what is the next step? I can't do this for very much longer. Uh, you know, what what comes next? And I just typed "economist" on ZipRecruiter, and a job had just been posted for an economist job at ZipRecruiter. And uh, ZipRecruiter's office happened to be a block away from my apartment. And so it just was the biggest no-brainer of a job I'd ever seen, like the the absolute perfect match. It was pretty much exactly the job that I had designed in my head as the ideal job for me, you know, when I was ready for for that transition. Um, So I wasn't really looking for a job at the time, but at 1 a.m., you know, awkwardly scrolling my phone, um, I created a ZipRecruiter profile, uploaded my resume, and then uh, thought, you know, I'm not going to apply now. I want my application materials to be perfect. I want to write the perfect cover letter. I want to update my resume. I want to do all these things. But it was a one-click apply job. And so in my, you know, sleepy state, I accidentally applied. I hit that one-click apply button. And so the next day I got a call saying, are you interested in the job? You know, Design is important in a product. <laughs> I think sometimes it's uh, it's important to uh, facilitate connections between job seekers and employers. Especially women have a way of uh, delaying sometimes and, and wanting to meet absolutely every requirement and have the perfect application materials. And they can delay themselves out of a job because in the job market, speed really matters. But going back to your question about skills, yes, the labor market is becoming increasingly specialized. Jobs are becoming more more specialized and are increasingly requiring different skills from one another. And that makes it difficult to transition from one job to another often. Uh, I think what is important to develop is the ability to learn quickly. And so when you find a new job that you like and that offers uh, you know, various characteristics that, that make sense for you, the ability to pick up the new set of skills in that job quickly, uh, to you know, do so in a very efficient manner, to find the right courses online that can give you the skill in 12 hours rather than 12 weeks, um, that is, is a skill. Right? Research is a skill. So I think the skill that I got trained in in school was research. And that skill has also helped me navigate the labor market because I can find the right pieces of information that I need to make a decision and, uh, and, and that you know, give me leverage and negotiations and that give me access to, to new skills and sort of allow me to make the best decisions. A couple of things there that you mentioned when you were talking about the one-click apply and how you know the design of the product really matters. You were saying speed really matters when applying to jobs and especially women, but I think people in general really um, worry about meeting the job qualifications. Like when they see a job description, uh, they're just like, well, 
uh, you know, that's not me. They, they want me to be like advanced at Microsoft Excel. Like I'm only a beginner. Right. And there's like these right. vague, these, these vague things. And they just want, they think that it's a requirement because it says requirement there. And one of the reasons your company so valuable is because you have all the data of who's applying what to actually happens. exactly right exactly exactly right. exactly and it's something that I, I that i've known intuitively but i don't have any data to back it up you know what i mean i'm just like i'm just yelling at people on, on tiktok and, and on this <laughs> podcast be like no that's not who they're actually hiring just do it yeah exactly <laughs> right. yeah exactly just go for it exactly apply yeah. anyway but i kind of want to talk a little bit about like what do you see in the data if you can share anything about what companies are actually putting out there as far as job qualifications and if there's mm -hmm. like a certain percentage of people that are actually meeting those things sure so the number one concern of employers is the lack of availability of qualified candidates right now. When we do studies to figure out which parts of the labor market are oversupplied and which are undersupplied, the broad conclusion is that almost every occupation and location is undersupplied right now. And so you have a good chance getting a fair hearing if you have 50, 60, 70% of the requirements. And if you show an eagerness to learn and the willingness to pick up new things and listen, and sort of a humility, right? The, the ability to take instructions and take feedback and grow and learn. Absolutely. And that's pretty much something that we try to preach here. I don't want to say preach. Well, I'll say preach. Whatever. We, <laughs> we preach that here. We had a very talented young man to come on. Here's a product manager at Meta. And he said something to me that kind of totally blew my mind, which is like, it's not what you know, it's basically like how you learn that matters. It's how you learn. Right. Right. And in most most jobs, the skills that you need every day were not taught to you in school, right? I did not get the statistical skills that I use in my work at college. I didn't learn the software programs I use at college. Most of them I learned from YouTube and Reddit and Twitter threads and um, you know from the sort of community of peers online working through these problems together. There are, you know, I, I have bookshelves of help files on statistical software tools. And now, of course, you don't even need the books. You just, you know, Google the question and you can find the answer. That is such an important thing to know that skills are at your fingertips, that you can pick up really, really valuable skills by watching a couple of YouTube videos. Absolutely. The skills being at your fingertips, like information's just never been more accessible ever. I mean, absolutely right. Yeah, you, you can you can learn how to code for free on YouTube as long as you you know put the time and time and effort in. Uh, and people we know of people personally that have reached out to us. They're like, yeah, I mean, I just did it for a year. You know, I was flipping burgers or whatever, and right. I built a portfolio. They didn't even have like a resume. They built a portfolio of work. And then they, right. they just sent that out to people or it was just on their LinkedIn and the recruiters reached out and now they have right. these completely different trajectory of their careers. And it just takes that being willing. It requires discipline. I mean, it can, you know, it's not easy to pick up new skills. You know, I think in, in South Africa, the government thought that we could just redistribute education and give education. That's not how it works. People also need to earn education or education is work. Um, but if you're prepared to put the hours in, you know, to practice an instrument or watch the videos and do the exercises or whatever it is, uh, you can often gain a huge boost to your income, a huge improvement in your quality of life. Absolutely. One of the things that I kind of wanted to talk about, if I was listening to this podcast, I would hear your story and I'd be like, oh, she, she has her master's. She went to Harvard 
like she was always going to be successful, right? Like it was always going to, ha- it was always going to happen like that. You like you went and you rubbed shoulders with all these big wigs and, and you were always around it. Like it was always going to happen, even though you're before that being from South Africa, you know, you came from uh, adversity and you overcame it. I would just dismiss that. And I know, I think a lot of people would as well. I kind of wanted to just ask like, has there, a- what points in your life have you had failures or have self-doubt because mm-hmm. one of the things and I'll, and I'll just speak from my own personal experience like when I'm applying to a job uh, there's so much self-doubt I'll look at it even I know yeah. I know that I only need to fit 20 to 30 to 50 percent of this thing and then I'll hit apply and then you know catch me in the interview if you don't like me right like but I still have that creeping down and sometimes to this day like I won't send that email like I'll just be like or I won't send that DM like I do it a little bit different now but it, you know like so I, w- I kind of wanted to ask like a time where you failed or and there's uh, some adversity. Oh man uh, I was just I was just sort of taking stock on the past year and looking at how many of the projects I planned to complete this past year did not end up getting completed and trying to figure out you know whether it's my whether it's my leadership skills that are lacking or whether there are obstacles in the company what is going on or I'm focusing on the wrong things uh, so failure is something I uh, have dealt with often and you know you kind of have to go in like like the military and do an after action report what went wrong why uh, let's try this. Okay, that doesn't work. Let's try this new path. I think the you know the the failure I'm uh, most personally upset about is that you know I I did a, a PhD program but ended up graduating sort of ABD all but dissertation, uh, not having uh, com- you know defended my my dissertation. I'm working on it though. I'm going to I'm going to wrap that up. There's no way that I'm not going to get that final sort of terminal achievement. Uh, although, you know, there were there were all kinds of just data problems with the, the project that I tried to work on. And I think it took me too long to recognize that the failures, that the flaws were actually sort of kind of terminal and to pivot and to shift path and to do something new, uh, which is what I'm doing now. But at the time, I just spent way too many useless hours trying to trying to fix a burnt cake. You know what I mean? Uh, sometimes you gotta cut your losses, you know, sunk costs don't matter and do something new. And I think that's that's the most important lesson I've learned. Stop trying to do things that aren't working and wasting effort, you know, change, change course. With the after action reports that you were talking about, like kind of similar. So my background is firefighting amongst the many other jobs that I've done and we're a paramilitary organization. And so we, same thing, right? Like after you run into a burning building, it varies from department to department, from station to station. But right. the way that we handled it uh, at our station was after we after the fire went out, you know, within the next hour or so, we'd all go decon, decontaminate. And uh, then we would sit around in a circle and we would just say like, hey, what did you do? Uh, what could you have done better? How could we have affected positive mm-hmm. change on this situation better? And right. that's something that I've taken into uh, my life. And, you know, I do this with Hannah, my wife, and we do this for even personal things. I kind of wanted to ask, like, for what your after action reports look like, you know, from a, on a personal and professional level. Sure. So one, you know, it's really important to write down your goals in the beginning. And then when you review them a year later, uh, it's often quite surprising. Wow, did I really plan to do all of these things? You know, what were these even realistic? Were these goals appropriate? So sometimes you need to not get so upset about, you know, failing to meet the goals because you learn something over the course of a year and perhaps the goals were wrong. And then in cases where the goals were valuable 
and you didn't reach them, it's important to try to figure out why. Is it something that you're doing wrong? Is it something in the environment that's going wrong? Uh, it can help to have a good, positive, practical, sensible mentor with whom to you know, go through those possibilities and a sounding board. It's not helpful to seek advice from negative people who spin things in ways that are damaging to your mental health and that cause you to do the wrong things in response. So I've seen this in several of my friends, you know, they have this friend they turn to who spins things in the worst possible light and who always say the solution to a bad situation is kind of to leave, get out, or burn bridges, or be angry, or take it personally, avoid those kinds of people because typically it's not at all personal and there can't, you know, I think there are, there are usually solutions where everybody wins, especially in the job market, layoffs, firings, all those kinds of unpleasant things, finding yourself in a dead end job. Those are all parts of life, right? They're all going to happen at some point. You know, more than 2 million people get laid off or fired every month, often through nothing that they did, right? We had more than 20 million people laid off at the start of the pandemic just because their establishments closed. The restaurant closed, the gym closed. If you were the best performer on the planet, if you were bringing in loads of money, it didn't matter. Done. Finished. I think the problem is we still think of a job sometimes like a marriage. And so when it falls apart, I mean, we feel devastated, like we've failed personally, uh, like it's a divorce. I mean, I think people get into a real sort of depression spiral when they uh, get laid off or something goes wrong at work. Um, I think our, our work success is very t closely tied to our sense of self-worth and our mental health. And perhaps it shouldn't be because the average American holds something like 14 jobs over the course of their lifetime. Uh, you don't really have that much obligation to your employer. You can give notice and leave right away. And if the business you know, needs change, or if revenue stops coming in, you know, they may have to let you go. They've got no real obligation to you either. And I think if you think about a job that way, and you don't take it so personally when things go wrong, um, you can pick yourself up really easily again, and think of yourself as moving from one job to another, from one stage to another, not as having kind of lost everything or failed. I think that that's a really important thing to kind of touch on because it's so difficult and and we all understand why. I mean, we spend so much time at our jobs, right? A lot of people, 40 right. hours a week, uh, pretty much the majority of your waking hours are either at your job or traveling to your job, right? Or thinking right. about your job. And so it's difficult to not have those things kind of combine and intertwine in some way where, you know, you right. have, you let your job define you. One of the things that I see a lot is especially in certain careers that gets really, it, it runs deep. And so one of those things right. is the military, right? Like the military, you see a lot of people like, Oh, I was in the Navy. I was in the army. And that's like, how they'll introduce themselves, right? And mm -hmm. I'll speak for myself that uh, like deciding to not be a fireman was literally the hardest decision of my life. And I think about it every day. And because it's so, it's so ingrained in who I right. was at the time and, and you know, who I am today. And well, there your job really does kind of become a family, right? I mean, in the military and in a firehouse, I think, um, 
there's a, a kind of collegiality that you, you just don't get elsewhere. It is hard to give that up. It's hard to walk away. And it is personal, not just professional. Uh, it, it, that hurts more, I think, than, than uh, most, you know, most job departures and separations. I will, I, I will definitely have to, I, I'll, I'll definitely have to agree with you there, right? Especially, and I'll speak for, you know, being a fireman, like, you know, I live with those guys. Yeah. Um, you know, I was a career fireman, so I spent 24 hours with them. You know, I, I knew, you know, not to TMI, but, you know, I, I knew when uh, Greg was going to go, you know, take his morning dump. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, oh, no, the second stall, that's Greg. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, and, uh, you know, so, yeah, right. I, I, but the, but I think the full, the, the main thread of it is still, is still true where, you know, you have to find some sort of meaning or value outside of it. And that can kind of, that'll give you the leverage, quote unquote, to, you know, put your family and your other priorities first. If, you know, like, as you were saying, basically I'll, I'll summarize in my own words, but like the company doesn't care about you, right? Like if, if the company is doing bad, like, they're gonna have to. They're gonna have to lay you off or lay somebody off, and uh, just so that they can survive. People inside the company care about you, right? But when it comes, when push comes to shove, um, you know, even family businesses that have continued and hung on to workers years too long, hemorrhaging money every year, running up massive losses, like eventually sometimes they just have to do what absolutely makes business sense. So I do think it's very painful for CEOs when they have to lay workers off and for managers to make those calls. It's, you know, you know, it's not, it's not like businesses don't care. Businesses are made up of people who can care very, very deeply. Um, but yes, at the end of the day, these decisions are typically made due to nothing that has to do with, with personal uh, considerations at all, at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, you could be doing a, a gangbusters job at what you're doing, right. but they don't, they, they, they've they got to make cuts and otherwise right. they, you know, they wouldn't survive. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, yeah. and I'm pretty sure that I'm not making this up. Uh, somebody on the internet can fact check me or you can fact check me right here. Uh, <laughs> was that one of the things that made me really respect Ian, I'm not sure if I, I think I saw it in an interview that he did was uh, when he had to do layoffs for ZipRecruiter, um, he said that he did uh, the layoffs personally. I, 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 I'm, if I'm remembering it, I think it was for all of all of it when it was a 10% or so cut of ZipRecruiter. Um, and he didn't leave that up to the managers. I mean, if you can corroborate that, awesome. But if, if not, uh, I'll try to post a link for people in the show notes of that interview. Yes. I mean, that was very, you know, at, at the start of the pandemic, uh, I think many businesses felt like a nuclear bomb had gone off inside their businesses. Um, uh, you know, revenue was falling quickly. You know, there was a hiring freeze in almost every industry that doesn't ever have hiring freezes, right? Universities, um, uh, even, you know, Police fit nations, like everyone and their mother was was pausing hiring, and we didn't know how long it would go on. Fortunately, the you know, business conditions recovered far more quickly than anyone would have expected, and the economy sort of surged back, and hiring went gangbusters. And so we recalled many of those workers and grew, and our headcount is higher than it was before. Uh, the pandemic now, um, but yes, that was a that was definitely a painful moment, and um, you know I think 
you know, doing layoffs with compassion and providing uh, you know, health insurance benefits for several months and uh, some kind of severance and things like that where possible uh, is, is great and works well and preserves relationships with those employees if later things you know, turn around and you, you have the opportunity to bring them back. Awesome. Yeah. And that, like, as somebody that has this very, very tiny team, I really respect that. You know, like I really respected that, you know, like you do feel some sort of stewardship over, you know, these people are trusting me to, you mm-hmm. know, steer this ship and get them to where they, ne- where they need to. And I can't imagine, I've never had to downsize yet, but, you know, I couldn't imagine uh, having to do that and it would be a painful thing. So I think you're exactly right. You, you hit the nail on the head when you said people within the company care about you, but like uh, what I meant as the company, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right, right. One of the things that, that you were saying there that you said was important was finding a positive mentor. And yeah. I couldn't agree more. Do you have a mentor or, or do you did you have mentors? And, and follow up to that is how did you find them and how can other people find mentors? Right, so uh, my spouse is i think my best mentor um the biggest mistakes that i've made in relationships and work you know and or hasty emails uh were because i didn't consult with him first <laughs> so I, I know now you know if i'm ever feeling upset about something have a conversation with him and he'll cool me down and and put everything in perspective uh and life will be much better at work i also have several mentors I have my manager will always give me sort of a, a different perspective he sees the world in a different way from the way I do and often makes me sort of pause and scratch my head and and think. Ian is a fantastic mentor. Uh, He's very practical, right? Just, and he just tells it like it is. He's extremely forthright and frank, and that's very useful to have in a mentor. There's no sort of beating around the bush. He'll just tell it like it is. And uh, his feedback almost always, no, absolutely, absolutely every piece of feedback I've ever received from him has made what I was working on better. Um, And then, Wonderful, a wonderful thing about social media is that you can find mentors in your field. And so there are a lot of other uh, business economists. We are very collegial. We meet once a month uh, to discuss the jobs numbers. And that community has also become a valuable source of mentorship. And we now sort of direct message each other on, on Twitter and, um, uh, you know, have discussed things from parenting our babies to uh, to you know caring for for family members with with cancer I mean they, you know, the, the mentorship I've received from that community has been enormously helpful amazing uh, just a couple of questions before we wrap up Julia one of the things that amazes me about your job is that you basically have to be ready to do like what you're doing right now like all the time like public speaking (laughs) and like meeting with people and then like speaking in an intelligible way to break down really esoteric uh numbers and data of which many people's eyes would uh glaze over and for that one of the biggest fears right is public speaking amongst everybody Mm-hmm. And but it's also one of the biggest superpowers or that I've that that I've found. What are some tips that have made you such a professional at uh, public speaking? Oh, I don't know. Um, I recently received media training. I uh, found someone friends said was amazing, and she and, and tough. 
and she really put me through my paces, so that has helped a lot. I see in my kids, I don't think they're going to have a fear of public speaking. They're constantly recording themselves, uh, making mock ads or um, speeches or just fun videos for their friends. I think they, you know, they all want to be uh, influencers one day <laughs> and have YouTube channels. So that may not be such a problem in the workforce uh, 10, 20 years from now. Yeah, definitely. There was an interesting, I can't find the actual numbers on this Lego survey, like the like the Lego company, <laughs> but uh, I, can, I can only ever find the CNBC article referencing this Lego survey. But anyway, mm -hmm. they're just talking about how astronauts, like they surveyed a bunch of kids about what they want to do. Uh, in in their life and astronauts historically have like been the highest and that's like getting mm -hmm. pushed down by like youtube star and, <laughs> and so i well your kids are very much uh uh within that range <laughs> that's awesome absolutely and you, but you know what the coolest job of all must be? Lego designer. I mean, the, what I love doing sometimes is just browsing job postings. There are incredible jobs out there that are so exciting and rich and, um, uh, you know, at fantastic companies making you know, wonderful products and services. Um, you know, when, when I talk to people, I wish that I could uh, sort of hand over what I see in the data. So there, there are so many rich insights in that data that I think could give people um, power and knowledge and comfort and a path forward uh, when they're sort of lost in their job search. Um, you know, the, one of the things that I discovered right away when I got to ZipRecruiter was how there were many jobs like receptionist and administrative assistant that routinely receive 100, 200 applications per posting um, and other jobs that receive four, five, six, or seven. Um, but there were these jobs that uh, are harder to get into than Harvard. And so you have all these job seekers, I think, who just don't quite realize what a numbers game it is, how many applications they need to send out in order to get an opportunity, and who think after sending out 10 applications and being rejected from all of them that they're failing. But actually, the, the odds are stacked against them. And in order to get an opportunity, you, you need to be out there much more and applying to way more jobs. Right? If you just knew that, if you just had the perspective of the labor market and, and knew what the numbers were, um, you could rationalize your own experience better. Uh, the most important thing you know, in any negotiation is to have the perspective of the other party if you know how urgently the company is trying to hire or how many candidates they interviewed who were just a terrible fit or whatever it is, um, it can be so useful to have that information going in. Uh, you know, my 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 one other uh, wage negotiation story is is my story at ZipRecruiter, where um, the hiring manager uh, asked me to throw out the first number and said, "So what were you hoping for?" And I sort of said, "Oh, I was kind of hoping for X an hour because uh, I started initially as a contractor." And she said, oh, really? Well, we were planning to offer you 2x. Um, big mistake. <laughs> big, big, big mistake. I guessed x all wrong. Uh, I think generally it's not a good idea to throw, you know, well, it can be a good idea to throw out the first number. Uh, then you should aim high. It can also be a good idea to let the other party that has more information 
uh, make the first move. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And then take your time. Let it sit. Take your time and think about how you're going to respond. Absolutely. I was grinning ear to ear when you when you were just speaking about that because that's something that we try to do here is basically try to tell people, you know, give them an idea of the numbers of applications uh, mm-hmm. of like of what you have to do like the legwork that takes that it takes to get a job and we usually say it takes a hundred applications to get one interview that's wrong but it's just to have that mindset of that you yeah. know and i think the numbers are closer well that's what you tell kids when they're applying to colleges too right or if they're applying to medical school right i think most people who apply to medical schools apply to 30 40 medical schools because it is so competitive there are so few slots and so nobody takes it personally anymore if they're rejected from their top five medical schools right um i think just in the labor market it's not that well known that some roles like flight attendant have enormous candidate interest and their employers have no trouble hiring. Um, and you know, if you're applying, uh, you might really have to cast a wide net. And the last thing that I wanted to say is, is like um, when you were speaking there, one of the things that we find the problem is, is just people not knowing what jobs are out there, right? And so it's something that I call like vocational creativity and Basically, like you need to have a target in order to have something to aim for. So nobody right. knows like wh- what I was talking about earlier about the pointy people. No, I don't. Nobody knows what a Salesforce architect is, right? I, I, until right. you know what it is, right? And the problem is like right. you don't you don't know what you don't know. And there's yes. a there's a good exercise for those people listening. Um, I did it in um, one of our previous episodes. You can look at vocational creativity. Um, you can l- l- look it up there. But Julia, thank you so much for taking the time. I think there are a couple of, of things in the ZipRecruiter product that help people with that experience of just not knowing what they don't know. Right? I mean, the most common search on our website is a blank search where people just hit search. They don't type in a job title um, because they don't know what job title they're looking for. And the great thing is when you create a profile, well, then we will show you jobs. We will email you jobs that we think are a good fit and learn from the ones that you click on and the ones that you ignore um, what is the best fit and give you better recommendations going forward. The other thing we do is uh, you know, invite you to opt in to being contacted by recruiters. And so if you are there available to be contacted in this kind of environment, uh, there's a pretty good chance that someone will invite you to apply to their job. will look at your profile and say, hey, you look like a great match. Um, and so, you know, sometimes if you don't know, let the other side make the first move, but make yourself findable, right? You need to be in that marketplace, in our resume database and available to be found. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Julia, if people wanted to learn more about you, follow you on social media, or where can I send people to learn more about you? So I'm at Julia on jobs on Twitter. And um, I am also on LinkedIn. And I'm going to try to be more active there as well. Awesome. Uh, Once again, uh, Julia Pollock from uh, ZipRecruiter. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Good talking to you. I hope you guys liked that episode. Once again, you can follow Julia on Twitter at Julia on Jobs and LinkedIn, Julia Pollock. That's Julia, P-O-L-L-A-K. And then the show notes to everything that we talked about can be found at degreefree.co slash Julia Pollock. And before you take off, if you guys enjoyed this episode, please leave a review wherever it is that you get your podcasts. 
Also, if you know somebody else looking for jobs, consider sharing this episode with them. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Ryan Maruyama, M-A-R-U-Y-A-M-A. And you can also follow us on YouTube and on TikTok, at Degree Free there. And that's pretty much it. Until next time, guys. Aloha.